Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm Cass. And I'm MJ. What do we have on the agenda today, MJ? We have housing is public health. We haven't done a housing one in quite a while, so I'm happy to like return to this. It's been a while. A few update about what happened recently to me. <laughs> well, all tied together, I promise. But so like many people in my generation or of my age, I do not own a home. In other words, I'm a renter. And it's looking like it's getting harder and harder for people of my generation to own real estate. But, you know, that's not the topic of today. It's getting harder and harder for like anybody to currently buy real that's estate. That's true. It's a seller's market. Yes, yeah. The younger folks, it's challenging to buy your first home. Yeah. And the current place that we're leasing, the owner doesn't want to extend the lease and he wants to sell the property, which means we have to move. And in light of that, the management company was like, well, we manage a lot of different properties in the area. Like, when you are about to move, we can send you a few listings before those listings go public. So you can have first pick of any properties that you may want to rent with us. And I thought that was really nice until they sent me the list of properties. I'm just like, the rents are so much higher. And they're like, well, yeah, because of inflation, because of the market. And I'm just in my mind, I'm just like, do you think our salaries magically went up too? <laughs> do you think that our salaries also went up so that we can afford this higher rent? It's like, no. So of course we had to downsize. And then I had this nightmare, like a mini nightmare where it's like, what if it just gets more and more expensive? Like, what if we just have to keep downsizing, and keep downsizing? And what if one day we just have to like, live in a shoebox. Oh my God. You're so dramatic. It's not realistic. I forget sometimes that you're, you're such a dramatic person. You know, it's like slippery slope. One step in a direction sometimes takes you down the slippery slope from a house to a shoebox. Of course, <laughs> this is a slight tangent, but it's related to what you were just talking about. The claims that everything is going up because of inflation just drives me nuts. As we've talked about before, the lovely Judd Legume has this fantastic popular information, and he's talking about how these companies have record-breaking profits that are outpacing inflation, yeah, and lot. people are making way more money than they ever have before because they want to, not because they have to. It's a prime opportunity for them. Companies are saying, well, we raised our prices, people didn't complain, people didn't stop purchasing, so let's raise them more. And like, this is not me hypothesizing. No, this is that actually happened. <laughs> Go out and read popular information, all of these meetings of these companies posting all of these record profits. And so the idea or the claim that housing is getting more expensive because of inflation. And that I think is silly, but the market is nuts right now. Yeah. We've talked previously, my neighbor is a real estate agent and she is constantly talking about how her clients are getting outbid on house after house after house after house because people are paying way above asking price and they're like waiving inspections and waiving all these other things. Which PSA, you should never waive inspection. Well, no, of way. course. Well, and she's like, I can't in good conscience yeah. advise my clients to waive an inspection. So like you know, they're missing out on these houses. But so that's, I was bringing it yeah. back <laughs> the long way around the cast tangent there. But all of these things feed in together, right? We've got perceptions of limited housing stock in some places that is accurate in some places, maybe not. We have inflation, we have price increases. Profiteering, yeah. And then when you have a finite set of resources and then everything else is getting more expensive, that gives you less and less to spend on things and it makes it very challenging. It and then if you add student loan debt on top of that. Thankfully, neither of us have been too, we're, we're not too burdened by that. So thankfully that. Lucky you. <laughs> 
I say with da- I say with daggers in my eyes. Didn't you get yours waived? <laughs> I applied for and was awarded an NIH loan repayment, and they paid off half of my student loans, which is great. I still have uh-huh. a lot of student loans to pay off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I you know it is what it is. My point is, not everyone is lucky, right? And we've talked before about the interest that the federal government charges on student loans, which is absurd. Like, why do you why do you need to charge 8%? Yeah, more than triple sometimes when you add everything. Yeah, Ugh, anyway. Because of the way, the way you pay something off. You pay more interest and then eventually you're paying more principal. Yeah. That was a wild tangent. But anyway, <laughs> so today's topic is housing. Back to housing. Back to housing is public health. And very briefly to recap, housing is one of those fundamental basic needs that if you don't have everything else becomes almost impossible. Absolutely. You think about just having a safe, stable, and secure place to sleep, to store your belongings, right? If you think about how challenging it can be if you're stressed or ill or anxious about things and you do have stable housing, like imagine how much worse that could be if you then also have to worry about, you know, being evicted or or missing rent or, you know, moving from house to house or sleeping in your car. You know, for folks who are experiencing unstable housing, that can compound a lot of already existing stresses. Yeah, of course. And then we didn't even get to talk about like the other health aspect of homelessness like for example being exposed to the element is like a huge thing unfortunately many unsheltered people freeze to death in the winter or overheat to death in the summer and that's like obviously not good right we didn't even like touch on those when you think about the other things we do in our home we bathe ourselves we prepare food we do all sorts of things and so if you don't have access to stable housing you might not have access to clean water you might not be able to sort of have safely prepared food, all of these pieces on top of not being able to feel safe and secure. So thinking about like Maslow's hierarchy, which we've talked about before, like you have to be able to meet these basic needs like food, water, shelter, security. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. Sounds about right. If you can't meet those needs, it's harder to move up to the next level and start to think about developing yourself and self-actualization and all of these other pieces. I'm like very hand wavy today. Sorry. It's the caffeine. No, I haven't had enough. Is this withdrawal? (laughs) Maybe. The point is that having a safe, stable, and secure place to stay impacts things well beyond just like a good night's sleep. And then it just makes everything much harder, which is one of the reasons that we need to talk about housing as a public health issue, because it needs to happen first before sort of anything else can like fall into place. So in discussing about the homelessness problem in America, inevitably, you would come across the topic of homeless shelters. And today's episode started initially because I wanted to learn more about what homeless shelters are and, you know, how they operate, how much they cost, etc. And what I quickly realized is that homeless shelters are not just highly controversial, but they're also incredibly ambivalent, like like contradictory almost. Like there's a lot of things that's great about them and there's a lot of things that are just like terrible about them. And to make things even more complicated, people's response to them are incredibly mixed. And I guess this is something that I want to explore today, which is just like the very like ambivalent and contradictory natures of homeless shelters. But in general, what has your impression of homeless shelter been? So I, as we've talked about previously, have been exceptionally privileged in my life. I have never had an experience with homelessness or housing insecurity or anything like that. My limited experience with homeless shelters is sort of documentaries and news stories, as well as obviously movies and things like that. Like The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith is one that that I think about. And I think the the challenge is homeless shelters often are meant to be sort of short term. They are evening only often. So you have to take all of your belongings, perhaps, and leave during the day. 
which is different from transitional housing, where people have sort of a longer term, stable place. They can secure their belongings to help them get back on their feet. And I think we don't do enough to ensure that people who are struggling Mm -hmm. have longer term, safe and secure and stable housing to try to help them get the other services that they need. We've talked previously that some folks who are experiencing homelessness have mental health issues or substance use issues that can make it hard for them to qualify for housing supports or benefits based on criminal history or other issues. And we need to be able to provide people with something more than just here's a place to stay tonight. We're also in some of these shelters, not all, but some, there's limited capacity. And so you line up at a particular time. And if you're not there early enough, then you don't get a bed. So I think you perfectly foreshadowed like exactly the tension that we're going to talk about. It's a very, I'm trying to find a better word than ambivalent or contradictory. It's like a conundrum yeah something not quite like sure that. what what direction i'm not quite sure what to make of it you know peculiar peculiar that might be a better word to start the positive the biggest positive about homeless shelter first and foremost it is much better to have them than not have them like that is just a straight up fact because if you're unsheltered again you're exposed to the elements and if you're in a state like new york or there's unfortunately a large homeless population uh, winter means like certain death Sheltering people, surprise, surprise, is much better than letting folks remain unsheltered on the street. That is an indisputable fact. Better to have them than not have them. And on the flip side of that, in extreme heat situations, some places will have cooling stations where you can go, you can get cold water, you can be in an air conditioned area. But these also are not meant to be longer term solutions. It might be for a few days or a day, even or sometimes even just a few hours. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, despite them being much better than the streets, they're still on average, like not a pleasant place to be. There's issues with bed bugs and lice. You know, poor ventilation is also very common. And sometimes, like you said, they could be very crowded to the point where it's it breaks like fire code. There's too many people in this space. So yeah, like they are much better than leaving people unsheltered. But Generally speaking, there there's a lot of issues. The people who are organizing it, it's not kind of their fault. It's like this is what happens when you try to house that many people in a small space. Theft is also another very obvious problem in, in these spaces. Not every homeless shelter, some do. Some homeless shelters, you get a locker to yourself, but not every place have that. So your stuff is just sort of out and about for people to sort of take if they are not nice. They're good, but they're also not great. I think an important consideration is that there are pros and cons, as you were just describing, and we can talk more about those specific pros and cons in a moment, but it can also be a way to connect people, Mm -hmm. to identify needs. In the before times, before the pandemic, there was a seminar series that the Department of Health Policy Management would put on uh, in the fall called the Fall Policy Seminar or Fall, Fall Policy Series. And Dr. Dan Morheim, who's a physician and had been a delegate, I'm not sure if he still is actively a delegate in the Maryland House of Representatives, but he is a physician and worked for um, Healthcare for the Homeless. And he talked a lot about the importance of being able to provide services and resources, Mm -hmm. serving as a point of connection, providing people 
a place to you know have some basic hygiene, get treatment, mental health services, whatever those things might be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes shelters could serve as an entry point into some of these other resources that people might use and you know getting onto a list for more stable transitional housing and those kinds of things. So there are some benefits to having a hub basically of yeah. coordinated resources. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Sometimes these hubs are formed with purpose and sometimes these hubs are just kind of formed naturally because this is where the people with needs gather. So a lot of different programs and services will naturally be drawn to these uh, shelters to sort of say, hey, these are like resources that we can provide for you, right? That's a good part, right? They serve as the hub of resources and communication for for the homeless population. On the flip side of that, they cost a lot of money. Overall, the United States spends about a billion dollars Actually, it's much higher than that. In 2021, the U.S. government spent $51 billion on homelessness, and the U.S. as a whole spent possibly more than $100 billion a year on homelessness. That's billion with a B on shelters right now. And this is not all from the government. This is A lot of this is from uh, nonprofit institutions, not just government funding. The government spent about $2.6 billion in 2021 on shelters. And they had a projection that if we want to shelter everyone, we need to spend an additional $4.5 billion of mixed nonprofit and government funding. So shelters cost a lot of money. It's a huge economic burden might be too mean, but I guess that's what it is. It's a huge economic burden on society to keep these shelters up and running and operational. Well, and this is something we've talked about multiple times before, which is as opposed to taking a public health approach to an issue and trying to think about upstream ways that we could address a problem through primary prevention or sort of more robust secondary prevention, often we're throwing dollars sort of the end of the prevention scale, right? Like somebody has already become housing insecure or they're experiencing homelessness. And then we're like, well, what do we do as opposed to working upstream? Yeah. It's like we're spending billions of dollars money to provide housing and services for people who are experiencing homelessness. It's like it's this... (sighs) It, this is the thing that always pisses me off, which is like, oh, you you bleeding heart liberals, you just want us to spend money on X, Y, and Z things. I'm like, no, idiot. We're yeah. already spending money on the thing. Imagine how much less money we could spend if we spent it on the front end to keep these negative outcomes from happening in the first place. It's like the core of public health. Yeah. How much uh, less money and also just like better outcomes for people. Like if we were to provide them with a, you know, a better avenue for getting out of their momentary unfortunate event, right? Because a lot of times it's like that. You have a momentary unfortunate event and you just need a place to sort of like pull yourself together so that you can Go back, right? Go back to your semblance of life, right? And this is another myth that I want to bust, which is I can't for the life of me find the percentage, but a big chunk of people who utilize homeless shelters are one-time users. Like they just needed a place to like get their stuff together and they're out because surprise, surprise, it's not a pleasant experience. Like no one wants to be in a homeless shelter. Well, I think it's also important. We're talking about sort of the shelter or the system, right? But thinking a little bit more on the data point you were just talking about in terms of who's using these, I think there's a common misperception about who is sort of experiencing homelessness. The estimates from the National Alliance to End Homelessness say around 550 to 600,000 people experiencing homelessness, a not insignificant proportion of that, let's just say 600,000 for the ease of math, are people in families. Yes. Which means that we have kids 
who are experiencing homelessness as with their family groups for you know a variety of reasons. We also have veterans. We've got unaccompanied youth who may have been in an unsafe household to leave, yeah. and left and have not been sort of given appropriate or safe services, perhaps by folks. Of that 600,000, only about 100,000 are people who are chronically homeless. And that's sort of the point I wanted to circle back to. A lot of folks who are experiencing homelessness, it's short-term or it's temporary. It's not like we have tons and tons of people that we need to be thinking about. Obviously, that 600,000 is not represented of the same people right. of every course, year. Of but there's so much more that we could be doing to provide supportive services to people. Like, just let's think about the COVID-19 pandemic. And the moratorium that was put on evictions because of the economic struggles that were happening, like that's being lifted in many places or already has been lifted. We could provide services to these people, the money that we're spending on homeless shelters. Billions of dollars. I'm not saying we should totally nuke and get rid of homeless shelters. But in a short term, if we could spend some of those resources on the front end to secure the current housing for people who are at risk of being evicted. We could save that money sort of downstream. Okay, um, I'll, I'll stop. I'll get off my soapbox. I love your soapboxes. These are one of the reasons that I think this podcast is great because of your soapboxes. But yeah, so another perhaps negative thing is that they are not conducive for folks trying to find job and work, not all of them. And this, what I mean is, like you said, you have to line up for them. So how do you hold down a job when maybe you need to leave 4.30 because you need to start lining up at 4.30, right? So they're not fully designed. Some of them are. Some homeless shelters are great. They have a lot of resources, but a lot of homeless shelters, uh, you need to line up for them very early or it's only every evening. So that means you need to move your stuff and then come back later. And it's hard for you to find work and do this at the same time. Right. As a complement to that, we've mostly been talking about these sort of short-term or one-night shelters where maybe you need to line up in advance, but not all of them are like this. Not all of them are transient. Some offer longer-term shelters. Some give you 30 days. Some go up to 90 days. In the process, you can have a caseworker or a case manager assigned, and they are instances where perhaps you might even get an extension or are moved into other longer-term transitional housing, which can help folks get back on their feet because having that stable housing, knowing where you're going to be, knowing that you don't have to be concerned about where you're going to sleep can help you to be able to hold down a job and, and some of these other pieces. And hearkening back again to one of our earlier episodes, sometimes in order to apply for a job, you need to be able to provide a permanent address. And if you yes. write as your address a homeless shelter, some folks might be concerned. You know, there's a lot of stigma associated with that, and that might actually prevent you from being able to secure a job. So having that transitional housing can help. Yeah. This is a throwback to having an address episode that we did really, really early. Woot, woot. Woot, woot. <laughs> this segues perfectly to the next sort of negative point, which is like a lot of things in America that is not tightly regulated, shall we say, there's wide variation in the qualities of shelter. Some shelters, like I said, are great. They offer 30 to 90 days. They assign a caseworker to you. Some shelters are literally here is the floor that you can lie down in. I think it's an important myth to address that, you know, some folks will say, well, if you provide homeless shelters for people, they aren't going to be encouraged to turn their lives around. And so you're just going to like they're they're going to continue to be that is a myth experiencing homelessness or more people are going to become homeless because they know that there's the safety net, which is just like a stupid. No one likes to be homeless. <laughs> it's a dumb argument. Right. Like, oh, let me let me go be homeless. No, that's a, that's just a silly 
like I reject the premise of the argument, but I do think it's important to bring this up that, you know, having a safe place to sleep so that if you are experiencing a mental health issue or a substance use issue, or maybe you are escaping a dangerous or unsafe relationship, that doesn't mean that you're going to want to stay in that situation long term. And so we need to make sure that we have supportive services to help people get into longer term stable housing. Yeah. So the flip side of that, and this is the caveat to that to that point, there is no correlation between the amount of homeless service you provide and the local homeless population. However, there is a small correlation of the more generous the homeless shelter and resources, the prevalence. Yeah. The prevalence of homeless families tend to be higher. So the homeless population doesn't increase, but homeless families specifically will tend to congregate towards uh, areas or cities where there's more generous homeless shelters and homeless uh, policies. So that is the caveat. Yeah. And that's in what we would like to call endogeneity. Oh, fancy term. Do explain. (laughs) Yeah. So endogeneity um, can be reverse causation or common cause causation where trying to evaluate the impact of some intervention on your outcome. For example, you might say, well, we have these services, and so we want to see if the provision of services reduces the prevalence of homelessness. But if you have really generous services and people are aware of those services, people may be drawn to the area because of those services, and then you don't see a decline in prevalence. But it's not that the homelessness services are causing people to stay homeless, no. it's because you provide good services, people are coming yeah. to receive those services to try to get help yeah. to get back on their feet. So it's important to think about the relationship between your intervention and your outcome in that your intervention might actually bring people in and could be affecting the prevalence of your outcome. Changes your denominator, essentially. It can, yeah. Numerator, denominator. Yeah, we're both, right? So Yeah, both. And that's for homeless families specifically. Like homeless single adults, they are not uh, affected by this trend. Another a negative part, well, this is not negative. This is more just like a thing that happens, uh, which is the community typically hates homeless shelter. We talk about NIMBYism, which is not in my backyard-ism. There has never been a positive response from the community responding to like a homeless shelter, either being there or being built there. Like usually communities are highly, highly against the idea of having a homeless shelter nearby. So and and this I don't think this has to do with the homeless shelters. It just has to do with people. Yeah, I think there's a perception that if there's a shelter, then people who are experiencing homelessness are going to be in the area more. They may be people who are asking for money, or there may be concerns that an increase in the population of folks who are experiencing homelessness would lead to increases in crime or violence, etc. And I think it also comes to like seeing someone who is experiencing homelessness. Like we by human nature, we are we make comparisons to others and seeing someone who's experiencing homelessness and comparing ourselves because that's who we are as humans to that person can make people feel guilty Yeah, that you have something that that person does not. You may. This is not the case for everybody, but you may have the capacity to do something to help that person. And if you don't, you can feel guilty about that. So it's much easier for us to sweep people who are experiencing homelessness into some other corner where we don't have to go so that we don't have to face our guilt and shame for not helping our fellow humans. Yeah. I don't know. That's just my <laughs> pessimistic perspective. No, no, no. That's that's very reasonable. So a few more negative things before I move on to the conclusion. There has been reports of profiteering from these shelters. So either people who work there are stealing. I don't know why this happens, but there's there has been reports that it does happen. So there's been some profiteering where people are not doing this 
out of the goodness of their, I don't know, but I don't, but there's, there's been profiteering and theft associated with some of these homeless shelters, not all of them, of course. Right. And I think that's a common, well, maybe not <laughs> common's a, a strong word, common strong word. it's yeah. not unique to homeless shelters. There's reports of people who have like 14 foster kids because they get all of this money for each kid. And then the kids like live in the basement and on cots and don't get, don't have, you know, good lives. So, but as we say on other issues, just because there are some bad apples doesn't mean that we we don't want to provide the service. Yeah. Yeah. Last small point. A lot of homeless shelters are religious in nature, which means that, hey, we'll provide these service for you, but you need to attend like Sunday sermon or you need to attend XYZ religious thing that we offer uh, in order to receive the service that we give you. And, you know, and not to bash too hard, hard on this because a lot of religious nonprofit do provide very great uh, resources for uh, the homeless population or people in need. But I don't know. I, I feel I think it feels a little weird to be like, you need to, you know, do these things in order for us to provide the service for you. But, you know, I'll leave that up to people judgment i guess what's that face <laughs> no i'm i'm keeping my inside words inside no i was <laughs> i was just trying to formulate my thought which is it's not uncommon for a, a variety of religious groups to sort of have a mission to address a particular issue sure and you know those folks have a, a belief system that leads them to this service hopefully for you know well-intentioned reasons yeah and, you know, it, it, there are a lot of times and, and a lot of different topics where folks say, well, we'll provide you the service and, and we want you to attend these, you know, we want you to find your way to whoever the deity is uh, in, the, <laughs> right. in that particular religious practice. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing, but I yeah, think it, it's, hard to it's say. different to say we're providing you this service out of the goodness of our heart because we are altruistic human beings and we believe a certain way and we would encourage you to engage in these activities. It's a very different thing to say, we won't provide you a service and unless you do X, Y, or Z thing. Like that's very antithetical. Some places do that. Yeah, but it's like when you think about some of the major religions and groups of religions, it's like, you know, do unto others as you would like to have done to you and, and love thy neighbor and all that kind of stuff. And so then if you are saying, well, I'll only love you and I'll only provide you services if you do exactly what I want and behave the way I want. Kind of like, like that, blackmail. <laughs> I don't know. It seems a little hypocritical, but that's fine. Anyway, we'll leave it like that. But religious nonprofit do provide a huge chunk of homeless resources. So not to bash on them. And they can be fantastic. Yes. And this, some of them are great. Yes. We're painting with a broad brush, giving examples of some of the kinds of challenges, but that does not mean that we're throwing shade at all shelters and all providers of these services. Yeah. And we'll end on this. The biggest thing for me, I hope this to be the takeaway, which is shelters distract us from the root cause and therefore permanent solution to housing, right? There is no incentive to get people housed from the private sector to build affordable housing. Like shelters are, like you said, it's like we just keep applying more Band-Aid to like a large gash, right? You're not addressing the root cause, which is there are people that needs help to get out of the unfortunate uh, situation that they're in. They need housing. They need housing. They don't need shelter. They need housing. And it's a necessary solution that we need to have right now because not having them would be terrible. But I think it also kind of is a distraction for the real issue, which is at the end of the day, poverty. At the end of the day, you know, housing prices have skyrocketed. At the end of the day, we don't have a good avenue to give the people the help that they really need. So this is the this is the ambivalent part, I guess. 
the biggest part to me is that it distracts us from like the root cause and therefore the permanent solution. Well, and this is why this is such an important public health issue, right? Housing is public health because if we only focus on the extreme end of the outcome, we're missing all sorts of points of intervention upstream that could keep us from getting to the point where someone is chronically homeless or even experiencing short-term homelessness. Having a set of public health tools where we are doing surveillance, we're gathering data, we're understanding what the contributors are, which many of these things are known, right? Like we're not, <laughs> we're not saying people aren't doing research on this topic. Like people know a lot about how to address this issue. But as you said, it's easy to sort of say, look at this, look at this dancing monkey over here, rather than let's do the hard work of addressing historically racist policies and social and economic segregation and reasons why people may be um, disconnected from services that could help them from being housing insecure in the first place. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health and things like housing insecurity. Yes. Uh, New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps the show immensely. And send us questions about housing, homeless shelters, and housing securities to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we miss an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page and you can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.